Greetings, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Robert Cathern, and today we have a fascinating discussion with Eric Williams and Matt Love. Eric is a professor in the School of Media Arts and Studies at Ohio University, and Matt Love is a virtual reality production coordinator and cinematographer. These guys are on the cutting edge of 360 and VR production, and I was very fortunate to have worked with them during my time at OU. Enjoy. The VR 360 process to me, so incredibly foreign, so completely different than what I've experienced. I've only actually put the goggles on three times. One was for Matt Love's um, project for experimental film. Right. Uh, one was for like a Star Wars game at the Grid Lab that I play, like Anthony yeah. set me up. Sure. And then I put them on one more time for a training video for people to see what it's like to have um, dementia and macular degeneration, Great. which I think also went through the grid lab. Mm -hmm. But I really, what I want to do is introduce you guys first. Matt Love is here. Matt has been on the program once before. Yes. And oh, we also have Eric Williams, who has never been on the program, uh, but we met recently. Uh, so what I really want to know is, Eric, how you got started in media production, broadly speaking, and then kind of I want to sort of move into the whole VR thing because we're right on the cutting edge of that. So okay. what brought you to OU or before OU? Wow, that's a that's a long I'm going to try to give you the short answer. I'm, I'm from Ohio, so I grew up in Columbus and then wanted to study film and went to undergrad program in at Northwestern University studied radio television and film thought that I was going to be a filmmaker and realized with an undergraduate degree I could basically work at the local hospital making medical videos okay so I did that a few years uh, with Grant Hospital up in Columbus and then realized that I should probably go to graduate school if I wanted to be serious about filmmaking and went to Columbia University and studied film screenwriting uh, cinematography, and then did filmmaking for better half of 10 or 15 years, uh, mostly as a writer, but then also did a lot of corporate video and traveled around, lived in New York, D.C., Columbus, L.A., um, and then got pulled back into, I guess got pulled into academia when my mom got sick about 15 years ago. She got this disease that paralyzed her body for about a year um, and so I was back in Columbus um, and fell in love with her physical therapist and decided that maybe sticking around Ohio and being with her would be a, kind of a cool idea and started. I've always been interested in education. I started teaching at Ohio State University and then from there got a job offer here. And so I started working at Ohio University teaching screenwriting and video production and did that for about 10 years, maybe a little bit more. And then John Bowditch, who runs the Game Research and Immersive Design Lab, he and Josh Antonuccio were talking about this uh, innovation strategy grant that the university was putting up three years ago. And they were giving a, basically four $1 million grants to faculty who could bring innovative ideas to the university. And they were saying, hey, this idea of virtual reality, augmented reality, has been kicking around every 15 years for the last 30 or 45 years. We think now the technology and um, innovation are at a level where this actually might take off. Why don't we try to bring this to OU? 
and so they kind of pulled me in and said from your Josh's background is audio John's background is game design and then my background in film they said why don't the three of us kind of attack this from those three vantage points and so we put together a proposal and we got it and from there I found myself having to ramp up pretty quickly into this but so my area is more 360 sort of through a film lens okay and Matt how did you get into VR? <laughs> <laughs> it's a slightly uh, shorter story. <laughs> um, you know, but at the same time, there are some similarities because uh, I came to OU chasing a girl. Uh, my, uh, my wife, uh, we, were, we were already married, so... Um, you know, you would think that there would be less chasing, but there wasn't. There was there, there was still <laughs> chasing. Uh, we were we were living in the Dominican Republic, and uh, you know, dipping our toe into filmmaking farther and farther, and hit a point where Carrie said, "You know, it's it's time for us to really take this up a notch, and you know, bring some craft to what we're doing." And I I think the best way to do that is to go back to school go back to grad school and study the craft and we applied at uh, a, a few different places we were pretty selective we really wanted to avoid uh, LA and New York um, and Athens just really stuck out to us as a as a really nice um, option that would that would fit well with what we were looking for and so we applied and got in uh, had a really great uh, first few years, our first couple of years in the grad school program. And then in that, in that uh, third year, I was looking at um, what I could do to, to augment the work that I had done before leaving the program, before graduating, and kind of stumbled upon a class Eric was teaching called 360 Storytelling. And at that point, Carrie and I had, you know, dabbled a little bit with uh, three, 360 video and, and I was curious and unimpressed and thought, and thought. Unimpressed by what? Well, just. Uh, the state of the technology, the, the craft, the content that was coming out. Like what? Well, you spend, you spend, you know, years and, and countless hours uh, trying to figure out you know, where to put the camera and how to, you know, what lens to choose and, you know, how, how different focal lengths affect the compression of a face. And then you come to 360 and it's like, okay, you get one choice. This is it. You wide, <laughs> ultra wide angle. And by the way, don't move it. <laughs> and by the way, you can't move it. <laughs> so, so, you know, that, 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 that was, uh, that was interesting. Well, you know, Eric's teaching this class. He's obviously cracked this and got it figured out. <laughs> and so that, that would be a really, you know, that would be a really interesting, um, an interesting class to take to, to get some outside the box um, creativity and uh, have that augment and, and, and enhance um, my filmmaking. So that's how I ended up uh, getting, into, getting into 360. It was a great class. Were you taking this class at the same time you were taking experimental? No. Uh, so I took experimental was fall. Mm -hmm. uh, I took that in the fall of 
well, I guess 2017. And then, so in the experimental class, obviously did the 360 project, the hand-drawn animation. And um, through the exploration of that, it led me to find out about the, the 360 storytelling class that Eric was teaching and took that in the spring of 2017. Yeah. So what's your approach to 360 storytelling? I mean, like, do you, is it just basic screenwriting and, and with, but you throw the VR camera on? I mean, like, how does that work for you? It's, it's one of the, it's one of the classes that I least like to teach um, because I think, I don't, I can't point to anything that I believe to be true. So as a screenwriter, I can sit and tell you what I think is true, what I think is not true. I can show you examples. I, I find that this whole area of 360 storytelling is completely wrong right now. I don't, I don't, I think people are doing everything wrong. Can you give me some examples? Yeah. Uh, so one of the things I do in this class is, uh, this is at least how it seemed to me, is I would throw out, great, what is 360 good for? And all the filmmakers say, oh, it's the next level of filmmaking. And all the theater people say, well, it's just like theater. And all the gaming people say, we need to make it interactive. And I'm like, yeah, but you are telling, you are telling the stories that you're used to telling and using this new medium to just tell those same stories. And I, I think that that's a misuse of the, the technology. I think we need to figure out the new types of stories that can be told with this medium. And so I don't want to go in there and say, this is how you use film framing techniques to frame 360. It's, it shouldn't be like that. It should be new techniques that we have to develop. And, and you think that that requires a different type of storytelling? For sure. For sure. So is there a reason that most of the work, well, the work that you know I was a part of a couple of weeks ago, is there a reason that um, the medical application is at the forefront right now or the medical training kind of thing is, is such a big deal? Like, what, why is that a particular focus? Is that just a focus for you in particular and this grant? Or is that just kind of where the industry is right now? Or the, or the medium, if you will, the, the technique? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, so the project that we were working on, one of the things that I think that 360 video does very well is pairs with other information like with a film i think you can go into a film experience and the film can be the experience soup to nuts but i'm finding at least personally that i think that 360 video has to pair with something else so 360 with a face-to-face -face training situation or 360 with on you know on a on a flat screen with your journalism story. Let me tell you about the overcrowding in prisons and then put this headset on and feel what the overcrowding is. I can't give you all of that information, I don't think, very well in the headset. I can do a heck of a good job telling that to you in an extended journalistic piece, but I can't make you feel what it's like to be in an overcrowded jail cell on a printed page. But man, if I can give you that information on the printed page and then put you into a headset, like those two things will gel together and make the most impactful story possible. Okay. So I, th I, th I think that the project that we're working on is an amalgamation of online information 
360 VR video and or face-to-face -face training modules. And I think that's, that's a really good spot for 360 to be, to be used. So can you talk about this particular project a little bit, or is that uh, under wraps? Sure, I can talk about it. I can't use the, the name of the project. Okay, that's um, fine. So this is, and Matt, feel free to jump in, because um, we're working on this together, obviously. Um, right. So the project is to create a sense of empathy for Medicaid providers for their patients. And so there's a certain idea that there are social determinants of health that a healthcare provider might not recognize in a patient. So if you show up at my office half an hour late, I might just roll my eyes and say, oh, there goes Robert again. He's, he's late, always late. And, and I, that sort of begins to affect the way that I behave towards you or even think about you as a patient. Mm -hmm. um, and this idea of social determinants of health is that there are certain things that are happening in your personal life that determine your health behavior. So one example might be um, that you don't live in a very good neighborhood and your neighborhood isn't on a bus line and you might live below the poverty line, the poverty level, and so you have a much more difficult time with transportation. And I, as a physician, that's not even on my radar that people might have to wait an hour for a bus or that if you miss that bus, you're going to be an hour late for your, for your meeting. And so that there are these things that determine your health or the way that you interact with health that if a healthcare provider was aware of it, they would think differently about the conversations and not just maybe wag their finger and say, Robert, you know, you're always late. The conversation might be, Robert, is there a way that we can help you arrange the schedule so that you're more likely to be here on time? Um, and maybe by creating evening hours, you could come over after work because you're already in the neighborhood for your job. Um, anyway, so the, the idea with this project is um, can we cr use 360 video to put the healthcare providers into the shoes of the patients? So we can see, we, can we spend um, an afternoon with a woman in Appalachia who lives below the poverty level and see the struggles that she is going through? Um, and then that is presented in two different ways. Um, we're going to present it uh, hand in glove with a face-to-face -face training session this summer with healthcare providers where um, trainers will talk about the social determinants of health, uh, and different medical aspects and then say, hey, let's put on 360 headsets and then you spend five or seven minutes with this person in an environment. Then you take the headset off and then you have more of a discussion about let's talk about food deserts or let's talk about transportation issues in rural poverty areas. Um, and then you, after you have that conversation, hey, let's go back into the headset and then you have another experience in that person's world. We're going to do that for um, a few months this summer, and then those 360 experiences will then live online, and instead of having the face-to-face -face interaction, we're going to have an interactive website where, you can, where you're led through that conversation at your own pace. So you do a little bit of web interactivity, you might have some quizzes or some exercises, and put on the headset or watch it on your flat screen in 360 
had that experience, move into the training, move back into the headset, kind of back and forth. So is that something where the um, the people uh, who were tr- needed this particular content were seeing gaps in their ability to train people? They were seeing gaps in, like... You know, I my impression, based on the conversations that we've had with the medical professionals uh, that are involved in this, is the driving force uh, behind it comes down to reimbursement and the way that certain... Um, medical care is reimbursed previously it would be uh, if a patient showed up at, at a medical provider's office a healthcare provider's office and you know had an office visit and the doctor you know diagnosed them wrote a script and sent them on the way they billed for that uh, office visit and that was and that was it what the what what the result was or what happened after the patient walked out the door was was irrelevant. But there have been changes to uh, specifically the way that the, the Medicaid system works and the way that the, the, the impact that the Affordable Care Act had on the reimbursement process such that reimbursement rates are now being tied to patient outcomes. So in other words, whereas, you know, uh, a doctor previously may have, you know, been able to see a patient, write a script for a, a bunch of medicine without considering whether or not this patient were going to be able to afford the medicine, take the medicine, you know, how cumbersome the, the medicating process was going to be. That, that was just, it didn't need to be a consideration. But now... Um, the thing is, if, if the patient goes, for example, uh, if the patient goes to the pharmacy and gets, you know, 25% of what was on the list, um, that gets tracked. And perhaps the reimbursement of, for, that, for that office visit is docked because the patient didn't follow the, the, the prescribed path. Mm-hmm. And so there's, a, so there's an investment. Or another example that we were given is, if you if you have a patient come in and and visit and there needs to be a follow-up visit and then they don't show up for their follow-up visit that will negatively impact the reimbursement rate for that healthcare provider so there's an incentive it, it, it would be it would be really nice to think that it's just this out of nobility that the healthcare profession is <laughs> is just you know so determined to to do a great job but you know there is a there is a financial incentive right now, and and I, I it's interesting. It's very interesting to see how this will will impact healthcare. Uh, so now there's a, a a financial incentive for um, a hospital or a healthcare provider of of some level to to put out brochures on you know inexpensive forms of transportation to get back for a visit or you know to to do some follow-up calls or to think about, uh, you know, how can we, how can we make this batch of medications that I'm prescribing? Is, is there a way to make this more cost-effective or to make this work? To, you know, to take into consideration where the patient is at, mm-hmm. and so uh, I think that's some of what's driving this this research to help um, medical providers get a better holistic picture of. Um, the patients that they're serving and the 
healthcare outcomes that they're trying to achieve. Sound about right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I hadn't really thought about it in that in those terms, but I think you're exactly right. I hope so. Yeah. How much how much freedom do you have to determine how you want to tell the story, how you want to set things up? Uh, I know you know Carrie was directing, um, you're directing, Josh is directing. I mean, th- you've got a lot of minds here. I mean, is it fair to say that you're you're the the boss of this area? <laughs> no, no, actually. Um, it's one of the nice parts is is it's there's a much broader collaboration and so the content is really coming from the whole medical side we have i mean probably all the people that you've met and certainly the people that you have discussed are all pro- the production side mm-hmm. but there's an equal number of participants that are coming up with the content and so behind the scenes Carrie and I are meeting with a lot of different um, healthcare providers saying, what goes into this? What are these social determinants of health? How can we illustrate them? And then they provide broad requirements, I guess. And then Carrie kind of folds that back into the team and works with uh, Inna, who's this great screenwriter, and we, we kind of build out the scripts and then feed those back to them. They make their comments, and it's this iterative process that we go. we've done about two or three months of screenwriting before we've even cast the pieces and and it's it to me it's kind of liberating so we can use our creative muscles without the <laughs> this is not bad but the restrictions of thinking it through because the medical side they're thinking it all through they'll look at it and they'll say well this doesn't track this doesn't make sense it's like oh good i don't have to think about that and they make those changes and then we just kind of creatively synthesize it i guess so you've got really really strong kind of guardrails for the creative process basically yes. mm-hmm. and when you send like a script to them then they'll say hey we this isn't achieving the amount of information we need or this isn't hitting the mark with whatever or that's right it, sometimes it's not hitting the mark sometimes it's just not accurate um sometimes um they know that they have specific points that they want to hit on um, in their training, in their face-to-face training. And so they'll say, okay, can you, certainly we need to make sure that we're talking about the food deserts. Okay. And th- but then they'll have hands off. They're like, well, we don't care how you approach that. F- food deserts? I'm not, that's the first time I've heard that expression. So a food desert would be, um, say you live in, well, say you live out in my neighborhood. Or, or, or I mean, this gets talked about a lot in, in Michigan, in Detroit. So there are huge areas of, of Detroit where in order for you to get an apple or to you, for you to get a fresh head of lettuce, fresh produce, mm-hmm. you have to travel a, a, you know, a ridiculous distance. And so that is considered a food desert. So you'll have, you'll have big chunks of the population who, if, you can't, if, if it's not something you can buy at a, you know, a 7-Eleven or a, 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 a bodega, uh, a, you know, it's not like there's a Kroger, you know, within right. 10 blocks of within walk within reasonable walking distance of of a lot of these um, homes where where people are living. And so those places end up being called food deserts. And I think of that a lot in the cities, but it's equally as true in the rural areas. I mean, yeah. I live out in Guysville, and if it's 9 o'clock at night and all of a sudden I have forgotten something, do I want to drive 20 mm. minutes 
there 20 minutes back or do i try to go to the marathon station and hope that they have some. Yeah, or, or cobblestone. <laughs> or, or it's, oh, yeah, I don't want fruit. I'll get some Slim Jims. I mean, you'll get what's there, right. So you think about how that will affect a person's diet. Um, well, yeah, I mean, everything in a gas station or a mini mart is essentially sugar. Right, sugar or fat. Well, and, and if and if and if you don't have uh, and if you don't have reliable transportation, um, you know, and and you're trying to economize, you know, you, you get faced with some difficult challenges. That's what hit me about shooting that one scene in the food pantry, because I was looking around and I saw very little on the shelves that I would actually buy to eat. Right, and I was just thinking, man, like if th- if this if I was at this level socioeconomic level and this is what i had to choose from like of course i i I would not be feeling good about my diet you know like that's yeah that really that was pretty right or you'd have to be a heck of a cook and have the time to figure out how you're going to take this strange mishmash of items and make it into something that's healthy good to eat and that your kids are going to want to eat because otherwise your kids will run down to the 7-eleven and buy a slurpee and <laughs> so it's it's interesting that you bring up um, you standing in the food pantry and and looking around because I think that we're touching on you know you're you're touching on something that we're hoping is going to be one of the values of of 360 toy storytelling or leveraging the the virtual reality component of of this training is if you know I, I I'm just going to go out on a limb and imagine if you had uh, read. An, an article on um, that food pantry, or if perhaps you had seen a, a, a YouTube clip, you know, what, what we call, we need to get a better word for traditionally shot because it's, it's, it, it's too disrespective of the medium, but. Uh, trad, but, can we shorten it to trad? trad. That makes trad. it sound trad cool, filmmaking. right? Yeah. Trad filmmaking, you know, that, that old school 16 by nine. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it, 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 you know, it would convey the information so there would be data that would be presented, but it probably my my hypothesis is in my my impression my my understanding uh, thus far is that it that it didn't ha- it wouldn't have had the same level of impact as you standing in that space looking around and being able to experience it firsthand, and and what were my belief is. And what I've seen with 360 is that when someone puts on the headset and is able to go through an experience in a in a 360 environment, like the ones that we're creating, it will, I mean, it will get us really close to where you were standing in the, in the food pantry, able to look around, see what mm-hmm. was around, and take that take that data in and turn that into, you know, turn that into something meaningful for yourself. Uh, so being able to do that in a way that, that other mediums perhaps, you know, aren't able to. Right. And that, that to me is, is the, one of the key differences, because if you said, if you, if you continue that analogy and you say, okay, well, let's put a documentary team into that food pantry. Well, now they are going to create a story and choose specific images to show you in order to educate you on what they think you should be learning about the food pantry. And so I, I, the, the push and pull for me in that, in that project is 
we certainly have a story where we're following a woman and her her trajectory her story um but we also want to give people the time to just kind of stand there and look around and make observations at their own speed or in their own order and i think that's where it becomes a different medium how do you balance in film there's a constant push towards story and forward momentum and i think in this medium there are times when you don't have to focus on story you can focus more on place but i don't know i don't see that being done very well well the other thing too is there's like a progressive disclosure component to traditional filmmaking too and it's entirely up to the director to decide what journey you're supposed to be on and it seems like 360 and, and the thing looking around the food pantry I didn't quite have that experience just when I was working but when I sat down as an extra in that scene and I'm with the paperwork and I'm looking around and I you know I'm, I'm in character because I took that very seriously gentlemen of course took it very seriously <laughs> that carried over to the screen by I, the way. I hope so <laughs> um, looking looking around it, it collapses the there, there's there's some kind of like there's a cognitive abstraction associated with watching a screen where you're separated from it and that gets collapsed to a significant degree when you have that headset on even looking at your experimental film which had audio from your time in South America right mm-hmm and then even though it was just drawings, like hearing, seeing that we're in a school and then hearing kids laughter like really close in the headset and it's changing when you're looking around, like even though that was a really short, it was like 30 seconds or something like that. It was a pretty yeah, like that. Yeah. it was a very short video, but it did way more to capture, because you've talked about like, you know, how fulfilling that kind of work can be and how great it is to work with kids and, you know, help people and schools and whatnot. And I, I do know that on an intellectual level. Like, I get it. Like, I, I totally understand that. But having that headset on, I was like, oh, like, him telling me that doesn't give me the sound of children laughing and laughing and being happy. You know, if I didn't have that headset on, I wouldn't see kind of like what it was sort of like to walk through those streets. You can only get that from photographs in a certain way. So, yeah, that is that is really interesting component to that. And I think what will be fascinating, it, we're in a... One of the things that the, that excites me the most about um, the the work that we're that we're currently doing is this is a bit of the wild wild west, you know, <laughs> because the the you know as Eric was mentioning, we're we're just now we're barely at the point where this has become a realistic viable option uh, technologically and um, realistically speaking to create content this way. And as Eric also mentioned, you've, you've got people who are coming from different backgrounds, from different, um, you know, storytelling schools of thought who are taking what they know and attempting to apply it to this new medium. But in reality, anytime you have a new medium, it, it just, I love the analogy of, or, or to think back and when cameras first came out, you know, they, they, they had plays in the theater. So you have a camera. Well, what are you going to do with a camera? Oh, my gosh, you can capture moving images? Okay, well, what do we do? Well, let's set up the camera and have a play in front of it, and then we can record the play. You know, and like that, you know what I mean? That, that's what you did. And so that's, yeah, that's, true. that's kind of what we're doing right now. It's like, oh, well, we're, we're filmmakers, so we'll set this up and we'll have actors do stuff in front of it. And is that what we should be doing? You know, I mean, it's, it's working, but 
the fun part is in the thinking of, okay, if we, if, if we throw all that out the window and we come back to a blank page, how can we leverage what this does and what this is and what this gives us and use it in a new way that, n that has never been done before and that it, nobody's ever used before techniques that, that we have to dream up to, you know, uh, filmmaking today is so established. So is, there's such a depth of, of work that has been done by, you know, the Lenny Reifenstaltz and, and, and everybody over the years to establish this, this, you know, this, the, the framework of what filmmaking is, mm -hmm. but we don't have any of that for, right. for 360. It's just now starting to be considered uh, for 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 being written, so that's that's fascinating and scary and maddening and frustrating. <laughs> what what was the uh, technological kind of watershed moment for realizing that this was a technology that should be invested in for what you guys are doing? Was it just like the quality of the cameras has finally gotten better? Was it a, a program thing where you, you can stitch together images more conveniently? Or because I remember, like, my goodness, it must have been. 92 or something like that when uh, I saw like I think it was um, Reading Rainbow where someone had a, like eight cameras on a headset and it was just taking one 360 photo and how you had to like oh if you arrange them like this and you can stand inside and look around and it's like oh that's really exciting and then that was it for a long time wasn't <laughs> it <laughs> yeah right I mean and sure. then but then I was looking at the camera that you guys were using and how many lenses did that thing have Six. So, six lenses. And how do they decide what the what the actual um, focal length is? Like, how does all that kind of stuff work? I mean, is there an industry standard for that? Are we still figuring that out? Were you just working with what you, the first thing you found? I mean. Well, I, I would really love to hear what, what Eric would say about um, what has brought, you know, this particular moment into into reality for for the potential of, of the medium, but I, in my in my estimation or my impression, it's it's the fact that you have you can have a lightweight small device that you can wear on your head uh, without cables attached to it that has gyroscopes that are sensitive enough and uh, and a screen that is high enough resolution and a fast enough refresh rate so that as you turn your head there's no lag so as as if you look to the left as quickly as you look to the left the video changes and it it the technology disappears and i mean yes the resolution within the headsets needs to improve and that's going to happen and that's going to help and but but the fact that you can for a couple hundred dollars get something that 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 will accomplish this and achieve this i think is it has to be one of the one of the more significant factors because you've been we've been recording uh and creating spherical projections for a long time uh, planetariums yeah, uh, come to mind you know mm -hmm. and they so these techniques for capturing the images i don't think are particularly new but what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's, they're very similar. I would say the aha moment for me was when I realized that this rectangle that I carry around in my pocket and call a telephone um, 
that you could see these things on your iPhone. Yeah. And I thought, oh, my gosh. And then simultaneous to that was because they were sending out the Google Cardboards. I was like, oh, you can take your phone, put it into a simple $2 cardboard piece and look around and in real time scan the your environment. Oh, you can also take it out and just and do the same thing just by looking through your phone as if it's a window into a 360 image. And oh. it's so responsive. Yeah, it's so responsive. You could do it with all these different you could do it with your phone, with your tablet. That startled me. So this is like a cardboard attachment that you can put your phone on is that is that what this yeah. is I'm not, I'm not aware of this oh and so this was maybe two and a half or three years ago two and a half, two and a half years ago uh the new york times invested in i don't know a couple million google cardboards and they sent them out they sent them out as a piece of flat cardboard with kind of these origami instructions on how to fold it up it has two little plastic spots where you can put these cheap lenses that they give you and it's just the right size to insert your phone at the back and it's clips on with a little velcro snap and your phone is actually the monitor okay and you can go to the new york times app tell me tell them i want to watch this 360 video and you can look around in using your phone and something that they sent you in the mail um, and they thought two and a half years ago that this was going to be a big thing everybody who had the new york times sunday subscription got a free google cardboard um, and I remember that at that point, just thinking, this is something that I've never seen before and could have a lot of different uses. Um, and then I remember pretty close after that, realizing that the audio did the same thing. And that's kind of, it gets into what you were saying. It's like, oh, I'm moving my head and I feel like I'm on the streets and hearing different people and kids laughing. And I thought, if you have those two technologies and you can do it by what you're carrying around in your pocket, mm -hmm. and yeah, then everything you just said, it's it's going to get faster and better and sharper and clearer. But holy cow, I mean, it's pretty amazing as it is if we can figure out a way to use it. So have you made any discoveries about like things that you can do? with 360 that you couldn't do before that happened through this process? I have a couple that I, uh, yeah, I have a couple that I think, especially Ohio University is really on the cusp of figuring out because I, like I said, I think people are taking this technology in a way, in a misguided direction. But one thing that I think is really important is this idea called preality. Um, so kind of a short, shortened phrase for um, preparing for reality. So we're doing this project out in San Francisco at the Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital. And we drop 360 cameras into a real emergency room in five or six different places. And we record live traumas as they come through. Then You've done this? Mm -hmm, we've been doing this for the last two years. <laughs> um, so the project's actually going to come hopefully to completion at the end of this semester. Um, and so we have recorded more than 36 different traumas from five to six different perspectives. Um, and so now you can, if, if you work at the San Francisco General Hospital, you can get trained and you can put on this headset and you look down and you look around and you are the anesthesiologist. 
you can see the anesthesiologist because there was one there they standing right next to you but you can you're looking over the anesthesiologist's shoulder so imagine if you are training medical residents who are about to come through your hospital and we, we did a test run three years ago at grant hospital and we asked the the surgical residents we said what's the biggest problem they said when we have to train medical students they don't they they can't find a space at the table you can't train your 12 medical students they can't all gather around in the emergency room we said well what if we what if we drop this headset down um and when they put the headset now you can have 100 students watch what you're doing they're not even in your way all that's in your way is this pack of card sized camera hanging from the ceiling but so what we what we discovered though because we thought oh well we'll just do we'll do these at grant hospital and we could market them and, and you can get kind of training on uh, the emergency room across the country but what we found is really effective is if you're training for that emergency room so if you are getting ready to go to San Francisco General Hospital, why not spend 20 hours the month before you get there hanging out in their emergency room? Put your headset on and you can watch. Oh, let me watch a car wreck. Let me watch a small child come in who's coming in with a broken leg. Let me just hang out in the emergency room when nothing's going on. And what we're finding is that being able to do that severely shortens the amount of time that it takes people, med medical students to ramp up once they actually get there. So it shortens the learning curve of being in that environment. Correct. <clears throat> um, and not only the learning curve, but um, confidence, um, just general knowledge of how things function. And, th and that's another example. I think a lot of people are using VR for manual dexterity training and i think there's also a really big area that no one's touching on which is just kind of cognitive understanding and, and comfort and so you could if you've watched enough of these videos you could walk into their emergency room on day one and know what's in that drawer i've been here before all of the bandages are in that drawer wow where is the iv pole it's behind the door. How do you know that you just got here? Well, I've been here for 20 hours, just standing in your emergency room watching you guys. I know that when she comes through that door, the first thing she does is pulls out this monitor and you almost get a sense of deja vu. Right, and, and not just 20 hours, but 20 hand-selected hours that would maximize your knowledge of that space. That's right. That's a really good point. You know, coming from a filmmaking perspective, I mean, the, this the the you know the individual assignment I did uh, at the tail end of uh, the 360 storytelling class that I I took with with Eric was was I don't I don't know if you had talked enough about the San Francisco project for me to have picked up on that. Um, Probably, but I took a, a 360 camera and, for my individual assignment and and secured it to the top of red uh, on a film set and wrote a paper suggesting that you know I think this is a this would be a great thing for incoming film students because a lot of the a lot of the grads uh, or a lot of the graduate students that come into the Ohio University School of Film are incredibly creative people. They're great writers. They're great. You know, but not 
uh, but many of them don't have a lot of set experience. So, you know, being yeah. able to, you know, we, we gain that, we glean that information from being on set by making mistakes on set, by getting in the way and, and realizing, oh, oops, you mean I shouldn't be standing here uh, and, and being embarrassed. And, but, you, but you learn. But imagine, you know, oh, hey, I got accepted to OUSOF. I'm headed to the film program. I'm maybe it wouldn't be 20 hours, but I'm, I'm going to watch some, some videos and I'm going to become acclimated to what working on a set is like. Uh, oh, the boom op. I see how he's... Or this is what that word means, or why do they keep saying this? <laughs> right. The terminology was one of the biggest... The vernacular. I remember that one of the first sets I was on, Brian McNeil said, can you switch that from spot to flood? And I just went... <laughs> and, and, and it sounds like the most It's the most basic, like... I thought you were going to go gaffing, to like put a squeeze on that or thing. something. Well, not even... That. And I, I just looked at him and I went, what do you mean? And he says, oh, just turn the, the wheel in the back. I'm like, oh, spot to spotlight, floodlight... Like God, and then it, yeah, and then it's like, oh, put it on a squeeze. Okay, it's a dimmer. Waste, waste that light right. a little. Yeah, waste, yeah, waste that off the side. What, you, what the hell are you talking about? Or, uh, but imagine if you could do that, right? And and have that whole scenario going on, and then just have little pop-ups that would say, yeah, spot to flood, turn this knob. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Or a stinger is an extension cord. A cube tap is this, this little item. That's right. You could have those things pop up as you're watching. If yeah. You, if you could, I mean, and you would be excited about doing that. You'd say, "Oh, I'm going to start this program, and I'm going to put this headset on and spend some time on set before I get there, so that I'm going to know exactly what's going on." And then you, and then yeah. you, then you'd walk into the equipment room, or you'd walk onto a set, and you'd be like, "Oh, wait! It's not only not only do I know how to do that, but I'm actually looking at the exact light I was looking at in the video. Like I know this light." Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, some of the conversations that we're having now are not only is this a, an incredibly powerful, incredibly efficient, uh, you know, customizable and, and uh, repeatable training experience or opportunity, but, uh, you know, I expect that as this, as this technology, as this medium becomes more ubiquitous, you're going to find that incoming generations will grow to expect <laughs> you know I, yeah, I, I, I agree I, I, hey when I was a when I was a teenager I played PSVR you know that's how I that's how I played video games when I was a kid why wouldn't I learn that way as a young adult or as an adult mm -hmm. uh, as as they as they grow they're just I think I think they're gonna come to to expect it there's definitely like an, uh, an inoculation sort of element to this because I know that every time I'm in a brand new situation with new obstacles, there's always that freezing instinct of what, mm. I, it, like the anxiety kicks in hard when you're in a new environment. So I'm just imagining all these environments I've been in in the last five years. I'm like, it would have been nice to have a VR experience <laughs> before I get in there so I knew yeah. what I was looking for. That's the thing is like the and this is something I'm really curious about and it'll be interesting to see because when when people first sat in a theater, and had a train come at them all those years ago. 
the some of them got up and ran out of the theater. They were freaked out. They thought a train was going to crash into the 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 screen, right? So are we just repeating that kind of a moment you know so like 10 you know five years from now 10 years from now you know is the is the value that we see today when someone puts on a headset and they feel like oh my gosh i was there you know i i put the headset on and i was on set and i had that anxiety that i would have had had i been standing on set and so now that i've had that i've i can put that behind me and when i get on set it's not i'm not going to have that anxiety or, you know, is it something that we're just going to become acclimated to and it, the same way that people became acclimated to content on a screen in a movie theater and will it lose some of its value? What do you think about that? I'm, I'm curious. I, I think that as we start acclimating to traditional 360 video, the next level of the next level will occur. And I think that the next level is you're going to be able to walk around inside of these. Yeah. Um, and so... As We're not going to jump right to the Matrix? It's not going to be just a plug in the back of the... Correct. <laughs> the neck? Yeah. No, no. I, no, I think you're... You know, I think you're, people are going to start getting used to what 360 can do while you're stationary. And then all of a sudden you're going to be able to move around in it, but it won't really react to it too much. And then all of a sudden you're going to be able to actually move around in it and it will feel much more realistic and then i think you'll be able to build worlds that you'll be able to much more hollow hollow deck mm. it's uh volumetric video is fascinating Volu um, volumetric video so volumetric video is is it's a means of of capturing imagery which allows you later on to move around in the space to a certain degree. You have a 3D. 3D was a fad that is gone or on the way out. But uh, when, when someone Please had, let it be on the way out. Yeah. I, I just, <laughs> or or what about gone? <laughs> yeah, people don't really talk about 3D. I mean, Avatar was like the big... Yeah, there's, still, there's still some stuff being shot in 3D. Never but paying for that again. So... You know, when we when we have 3D goggles on uh, and something comes out of the screen towards us, we, we, we get the sensation that something's actually coming out of the screen towards us. But using somewhat similar capture technologies, you can create an experience where you put on a 360 headset. And if I lean to the left, I actually do see a little more of what is around the side of of this amp mm -hmm. or if i look around to the back i see a little more of what's around the back and the in in the ability to create more of that i i'm i'm suspicious or doubtful or reticent to believe that we're going to be able to create cgi environments which are compelling enough i, I still believe in the in the power of an actual captured image that is true to life but same um, but I mean, what this is reminding me of right now, oddly enough, because I never played it, was uh, when Pokemon Go came out and everyone was just obsessed with Pokemon mm -hmm. Go. And then that's when I first heard about the distinction between AR and VR. Can you guys talk about that a little bit? Because it seems like the, the work you're doing right now is all VR 360, but augmented reality is a whole nother, like train track that's going on. Are you, are you guys working with that at all? Or can you talk about the distinctions and... Sure. 
I mean, the simple distinction is in virtual reality, everything that you are seeing is digitally created. And so, for instance, if you're in a 360 video, even if everything around you looks realistic, you are looking at a digital screen that is wrapped wrapped around your head. Uh, or if you're playing a, a VR game, everything in there is digitally generated, and you're you're just running around in somebody else's world. Augmented reality is when you can see the real world, and there are simply digital enhancements. And so with Pokemon Go, you had your cell phone, and when you were looking through your phone, you could actually see the street or the yard or what have you in, in real time, right? If your friend is standing in front of you and you're looking through your phone, you can see your friend standing there and waving at you, but the Pokemon character would digitally appear as if it was floating over your friend's shoulder or running across the lawn, and then you could go off and try to chase it. But you have your real bearings. Um, and so one of the things that the Grid Lab is doing, we're working on a project with the uh, P-Bio department, um, plant biology department. And the augmented reality app will simply allow you to walk around OU's campus, and when you see certain markers, you can uh, wave, a, wave your phone over the marker, and that will um, trigger some sort of digital enhancement of your environment. So for instance, you might see these rose bushes, rub, it over, rub the, your phone over the marker, and all of a sudden you might start hearing somebody saying, these rose bushes were planted 50 years ago by President blah 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 and they symbolize, or you might see this oak tree and have an augmented experience where it allows you to see what that field looked like 150 years ago before these trees were planted. It might be an old-fashioned photograph that's juxtaposed against the new, what you're really seeing. And you can say, like, oh, well, these trees took 150 years to grow. Um, and it's a virtual, it's an augmented tour of the plant diversity on campus. So it's like going to a museum. Yeah. Sort of. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Are you guys using RFID tags for that? I'm not sure. Beth Novak is doing that project. I'm not sure exactly how they're doing it. What's RFID? Uh, so uh, it's a radio frequency chip. So okay. it's a... Oh, you'd, you'd put actual chips in these locations. So well, that's, that's what I was wondering, if, if what was triggering the phone was... Because that would be one way of accomplishing it. You, there's, a, there's, there's an RFID chip at that location, and when the phone senses that, oh, this is RFID chip, such and such number then it triggers um, another way to do it would be to use uh, QR codes but um, like GPS no uh, well okay so that's interesting so that is being utilized in museums right now where if you have enough RFID readers or enough RFID beacons they create somewhat of an indoor GPS which can precisely locate precisely enough locate you within the museum to trigger certain things to come up on um, on a display or a device uh, but this would be a little a little different but you can also yeah but or the RF code or the uh, QR, code. QR code is more of a visual signifier and so you're creating a unique visual pattern that your phone or your tablet recognizes and translates into something right usually a web address so, okay. so that's another project that we're working on with the Scripps College of Communication is part of uh, 
trying to attract future students is we're making these Scripps College of Communication posters that have these hidden, you could call them QR codes, but they're just, they're just visual uh, icons. So if you put your poster on your wall and every, um, every season, if you go over the sports icon, all of a sudden it'll give you a newly uploaded video about what's going on with uh, OU baseball, what's going on with OU football, what's going on with the basketball team. And so by using your phone and augmented reality app, when you identify this unique icon, it'll take you to a YouTube video that our team will just upload every football season or maybe every three weeks, they'll give you a new update. But if you go to a different part of the poster, you might just have undergrads saying, hey, what's going on? It's the first week of school. This is just like a little Snapchat saying, hi, you should come in and enroll in our school. Um, and so this seemingly still poster, if you use this augmented reality app, will kind of evolve and, and live on your wall for as long as we keep providing content. Would you say that uh, video games are still pushing this technology for the most part? Or do you think that your, your training videos... Because what I, what I keep thinking, what I keep hearing about, are you put the headset on and you're in a room with a bunch of like foamed edges and then you have your, your gun and you can pretend that you're <laughs> killing aliens, which I think sounds pretty awesome, which I would, would really like to do at some point. Uh, but, it, but it sounds like... I mean, would, just hearing what you're talking about, San Francisco... Uh, with the in putting that in the hospital, that that just completely opened up the amount, the possibilities of what you can do with that is just amazing. Um, but like the video game side of it, because the Grid Lab does do video game training. Can can you yep. major in video game design over there? You can. Okay. Um, actually, it's not at the Grid Lab. Um, in the School of Media Arts and Studies, there's a game and animation major. Okay. Um, but then we're actually we're starting a new school in the in the coming years. Um, and so you could major in some sort of immersive media type major where you could do game design, VR, AR, um, machine learning, artificial intelligence, trying to figure out how to combine all of those different elements into kind of, I think, what you're talking about. Okay. But it's, it still seems like video games are like that's... I think this, I think this entire field is in its infancy. I, I think we'll look back a decade or two from now and and chuckle at at how simplistic and and small-minded our thinking was with regards to uh the possibilities and the potentials of of virtual and augmented reality so you, you talked about dropping things into hospitals for a way to train people what other kind of things have you discovered through this process that it's like you're like ooh, ooh didn't think about this or no one else is doing this or can and, you talk about such things imagine this one of our colleagues is is at working on take take a an empty brick building complete with um, stairwells doorways and what have you but it, it's just a bare bones empty brick building imagine mapping that building down to the tenth of an inch and then creating or recreating a, a virtual representation of that building that, that matches exactly. And then being, having sensors throughout the building such that when you move through the building with a headset on, 
you are you're getting a visual um, recreation of that building. So if you reach out to your left in in the virtual world and see a wall and and try to touch it in the real world, you would actually touch a physical wall. Except in the real world, it's just a bare brick block. But in the virtual world, it can be anything you want. It could be a painted wall. It could be it could be a wall with bullet holes. It could be a wall that's on fire. Mm. And so now, you know, just imagine um, a you know a, a police officer or a firefighter or or someone in the armed services who has the ability to go through a you know a, a simulation at with with a level of reality and drama that wasn't previously possible mm. you could stick your head around you know you, the corner of a real <laughs> hallway except at the at the other end of the hallway you you could see you know an assailant or someone holding a civilian hostage or any one of a number of things a tiger mm-hmm. right <laughs> you could say oh we found the lion now we have to figure <laughs> out what to do with it uh, you just let your imagination run wild so combining that's basically taking your idea of the you know the the nerf cornered uh walls and shooting aliens. i wish that was my idea it's definitely not my idea but <laughs> go ahead but i mean but taking that you know to to a little bit higher degree and to you know, to a little bit more professional level f- in terms of um use not in terms of quality or or whatnot and uh, there's so many applications. I'll give you another one. I'll, I'll, I'll go more storytelling. Um, this is just a really simple example, and I keep throwing it out there, and everyone just kind of rolls their eyes. But I, I think this is very true. In 360 video, what most people do is they put the camera in a room, and then, great, you get to look around the room, and you can look in every direction. And I think there's that, that's certainly valid. But it's not the only way you can use a 360 space. I mean, imagine if just like you can cut a, a two-dimensional film left and right side, what if you have your 360 video and you cut it in half? And when I look to the right, I'm inside of a house. And if I look to the left, I'm outside of that house. What if, what if my 360-degree vision is split through the middle by the wall on the outside and the inside? Hmm. Now I can look at the robbers who just got away from the bank heist and see them counting their loot or having their argument or what have you. But if I turn the other way, I can see the police arriving. Now, as the audience, I have a choice. Do I want to watch the cops or do I want to watch the robbers? Now, what if your audio matched that? What if just like a dial on your stereo if you turn to watch the cops you can't hear what the robbers are saying what if as you watch the robbers the audio on the cops turns down what if it was like a what if it was a dial where you could split it if i looked at straight down the division wall i could hear half of what the cops were saying and half of what the robbers were saying now that starts giving you power for your director again if you have the characters that I'm trying to follow my, that are leading my interest, if they are together and I'm looking at them both, I can hear them both. But if Robert, the actor, moves to the right 
and Matt, the actor, moves to the left and forces me to look either right or left. And when I follow Matt, I can't hear Robert or vice versa. Now, all of a sudden, you are forcing the audience to make choices, which I think engages them more. That's really interesting. And, you know, our, our I'm co-teaching along with Carrie uh, a th- an undergrad course of... Should have, of should have invited Carrie in here. I feel like a jerk. <laughs> we'll of, have to have another, another session. We'll have to have another... She gets her own. She gets her own dedicated session. Yeah, no. You know, we, we utilized that as an exercise, and the students in our class actually went through that process of, of doing that. But what Eric's touching on, I think, is both a, a strength and a detriment uh, to this medium. So uh, I'll explain what I mean. So when it comes to the, you know, on, on a certain level, what we're doing is we're taking what has you know, traditionally been a very non-interactive or a very passive uh, experience watching something. You, know, you sit down and you, you watch. This thing happens to you. And we're now telling the viewer, we're now telling the participant, hey, you have to work. You, know, you, you, you you've got you you've got a role in this. You think you're just going to plop down on the couch and and no no you you have to you have to engage your brain. You can't you can't be texting while you do this. You can't be, you know, reading an article while you do it, and and you can't be cooking while you do it. You have to fully engage because we're closing you off from from your environment. We're completely submersing you in this in this created world, and not only that, but based on your actions, uh, y- you'll either see or not see what is of interest to you. So on the one hand, that's part of what makes this such a powerful tool for training is because we fully engage the learner in a way that's difficult to do otherwise. And then the other hand, I think to a certain degree, that's one of the reasons, that will be one of the limiting factors for this medium when it comes to narrative storytelling or for, for its entertainment value because it requires um, such a level of, in, of engagement. So not to say that it won't have a place in storytelling. I just, I, I don't ever see it completely replacing um, or, or supplanting uh, what we affectionately referred to as traditional filmmaking. That does raise some interesting questions, though, about how you would write that particular type of story or how you would even direct it, because you're establishing scenarios and possibilities, and then they have to work together based on what path the viewer decides to follow. So it's not quite like choose your own ending, but it's but from a directing standpoint, though, it's like you have to your attention can't just be this is the main character. It's now the viewer is part of the story telling. Yeah, but but watch watch this though. There's we, we, this is where you start to blend gaming with the storytelling is because in in when we bring gaming engines into into the mix and Quite frankly, I, I think these are tools that will end up being pulled into major NLEs or nonlinear editors as we move forward. And more of this content is is processed through Premiere Pro and Final Cut and, and Avid. Um, we have things like triggers, right? So 
as Eric mentioned, when, when we're watching the robbers, we're hearing the robbers and the volume is turned down on the cops. But what if there's this critical moment that happens with the cops that we don't want the viewer to miss? So there's this activity that's going on with the cops, but they kind of, to a certain degree, go into a holding pattern. And it's not until you until the headset knows that you've turned around and put your attention on the cops that it triggers an event in other words it it comes out of its loop and plays a clip that it needed you to see okay that makes sense so mm -hmm. so your gaze because the headset can tell where where if, if you just imagine a mouse pointer at the center of the frame of where you're at and as that moves, wherever it lands, it can trigger things. Caitlin in the uh, in the grid lab did a f amazing job creating some content that helped uh, that is helping new parents uh, baby proof their homes. So she took a 360 photo in a typical residence with, you know, a knife hanging off the edge of the counter and the dishwasher <laughs> partly open and you know thumbtacks all over the floor you know different different things <laughs> right. right so so as the viewer moves their head around it and it's just the 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 act of placing the center of your gaze over a particular element and a pop-up comes up and says oh this you know particular substance is 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 a hazard to children because they tend to put these kind of things in their mouth and you might want to think about not having those there. Not having those there. Um, so you, that can also become part of the work of the director and the editor in, in the storytelling. You can see why it's in, in its infancy, because the, these are tools and techniques that have yet to be fully uh, embraced and, and implemented into into the process but they they will i mean they will get there that'll become part of every nle that wants to play in this game is is the ability to create these kind of triggers i, I just keep thinking it's complicated enough i mean from a screenwriting perspective to tell a compelling story with like subplots and motivations and characters and have it be good you know there's there's that's unbelievably difficult to begin with and then you're just adding these layers of complexity to that when you bring in the headset is what it sounds like to me. Am yeah, I wrong? But, well, yeah, a little bit. Because, again, you're, you're still thinking through a traditional filmmaking set of glasses. Set of yeah. glasses. Yeah. So you, yeah, it's you, really hard to shake that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So imagine if you could pull back the storytelling drive and replace it with something else. I'm cringing right now. I know. Pulling well, back the storytelling drive. Don't say that. That's heresy. Well, but, but it, <laughs> it's, it's important, though, because, because I think that even, okay, so even in the, the robbers and the cops scenario, you are still giving the viewer the opportunity to kind of project their own narrative onto the situation, right? Yes. But it's, it's the projection of your own narrative. And the, the, the space, the breathing space to allow that to happen inside the audience's mind that I think is going to become more important. Is that because you're, you're presenting these things without a more heavy-handed directorial commentary or perspective? As the creator? Well, because... because um 
Yeah, well, because no, actually, probably more as the viewer. Because if you're if you're looking at like point of view, like whose point of view are we following here? Because you might physically have the point of view because you have the glasses on, right? But the actual point of view is where is it? It depends. You you would have that control, and you can move that. You can adjust that from first person to a second person to an omniscient point of view. Indulge me for a second. Sure, please go ahead. So, one of the things that I (laughs) if you like opera, I apologize. I really like going to the opera, and it doesn't really matter to me what the opera is because most of the time when I go to an opera, I'm so out of it i'm not paying attention to the opera like i'm in the opera because oh i can stare straight ahead and kind of watch this story but for two and a half hours i can think my own thoughts and just have my own daydreams and imaginations and oh yeah oh yeah she's sad about something oh yeah he's really angry like and i get it like there's a thread so I have a question in 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 the opera are you, are you are you writing the dialogue for these characters? Oh uh, no 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 no! Because I, that would be hilarious. You I mean, mean that... you're zoning in and out of the experience <laughs> with your own. Yeah, like I might start thinking like, oh, look at that! That's a party. Like, oh, that reminds me. Oh yeah, I remember about a party that I went to. No 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 no. Oh, he's angry. I remember when. Oh my gosh, I used to be angry like that. I was angry at my neighbor when he stole my lawnmower and then i just kind of drift in and out i'm I'm kind of loosely connected to what's going on in the story but i'm not especially if it's uh, in a language that i don't know right I, I can't even follow what they're saying so i'm just kind of but you would never be so rude as to take out your phone in the opera so what's interesting to me is it sounds like people used to just sit on their front porch and sit on the swing and 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 have the ability to let their mind go but your world is so busy and so compressed and so demanding of your attention that you can't sit on your front porch. You have to go to the opera in order to let your mind <laughs> loose. Right, right. Well, no, but that's a that's a great example because you would do the same thing if you were sitting on your porch watching the world go by, right? It, you, right, right. Whatever goes by kind of sparks a thought and then you'll have that thought for a while and then something else is going to come by and spark that thought. Uh, is, is this analogous to the 360 experience? Yes. So, so this is a story that I've been working on. So I want to tell a feature-length 360 story that starts with you waking up and realizing that you are a rock climber that has fallen but not died. But somebody next to you has died. And you don't know where you are except that you are at the bottom of this huge outdoor um, ravine. ravine. Yeah. And the entire story is really you, you uh, first person trying to get back to safety, not knowing where, what happened, where safety is or how to get there, but you've got certain stuff. And I have techniques where you can pull yourself out of first person and you're watching this this survivor in third person. But the story of survival is kind of the opera story, if you will. It's enough to keep you aware that there is a story. Oh, we're on the move. We have to... Oh, it's getting colder. It's nightfall. We've got to find shelter, what have you. 
But to me, a lot of the story is also just going to be the ambience of what it feels like to be alone in the woods as night falls. There doesn't have to be much story to that. I, I think if you had really good ambient music and night settling, like that would creep me out for like 10 minutes. I could just listen to really... I could just listen and be in the woods as night's falling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think you need a lot of story with that. And you'd, ne- you'd hardly ever see that in a traditional film. Well, that's, that's interesting, too, because it, it's, when you're talking about the original, um, like when we first point the camera at a, at a theater, you're watching a play, right? So 2D, whatever. And then Trap. some of the earliest films that they made were like Thomas Edison was doing like videos of cats, you know, and it would be like, wait, pay. wait, Thomas Edison made cat videos. Didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. He, there's Did some he? of the first that, yeah, before the major Hollywood studios were established in Los Angeles, it was all made in New Jersey and they had these little videos and you would like pay a nickel or a, however many cents it was. And you'd watch a five minute video of someone like, like two cats like boxing each other and, you thought, little, like, YouTube boxing created created and I thought YouTube yeah. created that and, oh and, my and so, goodness but what happened was like the original like big three and I'm butchering film history here but the original <laughs> big studio heads were like screw this like we're gonna make our own films that actually have like drama and then Edison would send people to harass them because you're not allowed to use my invention for this like I own all the film <laughs> That's so they're funny. like you know what we're gonna go to LA so they they go to LA they're like oh it's sunny there's, there's a beach here, the weather's better. And then they establish these major studios and like, hey, we're not going to make stupid cat videos. <laughs> and, then, and then YouTube came <laughs> along. And then Hollywood. But, but my point, though, is that for a time, the novelty was so intense that all people could really handle was like going into a dark theater and huh. watching a two-minute video. That's all they could handle at the time. And then it became feature filmmaking. And then, you, you know, you start getting all those different innovations that made it so, hey, we're sitting down for two hours to watch this. So what it sounds like, what you're telling me is like that could be a really cool 10 minute experience of night falling and things getting intense. I can't imagine that at this point because my VR experience is so limited being a feature length experience of survival. When you say feature length, do you mean 90 minutes mm-hmm. or more? That is, that, is inter- that is very interesting because right now the prevailing wisdom does seem to be yeah, about three minutes is, you know, three to five minutes is about all you want a, a VR experience to be. Right, but the prevailing wisdom when I try to make educational videos these days is like, you should probably keep it to 90 seconds. It's like, what? I, I think the prevailing wisdom of the American psyche is shorter and shorter, but I don't think that that means that this technology next necessarily needs to follow that paradigm. It also doesn't have to conform to a lowest common denominator why why are we going to aim for the bottom right right well i mean we should aim for the top we should be aiming for cat videos (laughs) (laughs) but i do think that uh i'm going to design it for each section being one day and so i i think i will probably break it up into three or four 20 minute segments each 20 minutes being a day of survival interesting i i think that could be really cool yeah it sounds like a project that needs a good cinematographer probably does (laughs) you need a grip how would i narrate from the distance uh yeah cool so i mean i we have to wrap things up here but uh i feel like we could probably talk for another couple hours about this stuff um 
where can people find out more about your work? Um, are there any particular websites, anything I can put in like the show notes when I post this? Sure, I can share the Grid Labs website. Um, that's probably the best place okay. we have all the different projects we're working on and ways that other people can get involved in it. Okay, cool. So yeah, if you send me that information, then I can put it in the show notes and we'll get going. Okay. Um, thank you, gentlemen, so much for dropping by. I really appreciate it. We should definitely do this again. It's a lot I of like fun. That. Yeah, we should definitely, I, I want to get Carrie and, and Ina in here too to talk about the writing process. I think it would be really Absolutely. great. Um, but yeah, so uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Right. Thank Cheers. you. Thanks for listening. That was Eric Williams and Matt Love from Ohio University. Be sure to check out gridlab.ohio.edu if you want to get some more information about their projects. You can find me on Instagram at rkodinson and on Facebook at Robert Kathern. Feel free to subscribe, leave a review, and I'll catch you next time.